Our mission statement here at Lincoln Burian is to glorify God by seeking to present every person complete in Christ. But let's raise the question, how exactly does that happen? How does someone become complete in Christ? Is it through programs and a lot of religious activity, or is it some other way? That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Hebrews chapter 7, continuing our discussion of Melchizedek, to which some of you are groaning, oh no. Last week, the comments ranged from, that was really great, cleared a lot of things up, to, I had no idea what you're talking about, and everything in between. So just a normal weekend at Lincoln Burian. But this whole discussion about Melchizedek, it is complicated. So a couple of things to keep in mind. One is it's helpful to remember that the first readers are struggling. They're Jewish Christians primarily that are headed into persecution, but there's clearly some influence seeking to convince them to return to the old covenant, to return to the old ways. I don't think it was so much abandoning Jesus as much as blending Jesus into the old covenant. This was a problem, for example, when Paul wrote to the Galatians. The concern was not an abandonment of Jesus, but kind of the blending of Jesus into the old covenant system. And that's what these people are wrestling with, and that's what the writer's talking about. If something far better has come, why would you do that? Why would you go back to something that was highly ineffective? The second thing is Melchizedek. It's a very mysterious figure. He shows up one time in the narrative, in a story. That's Genesis chapter 14. He shows up in four verses, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Melchizedek then is mentioned by David in Psalm 110, verse 4, and only mentioned by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament. He was a real person. He was a real king ruled over a real kingdom. But Melchizedek is put forth as what we refer to as a type. A type is kind of a foreshadowing. It's a picture of ultimately the fulfillment of the promise of the Savior to come. And that's not unusual. There's a number of types in the Old Testament. So in order to do that, it's kind of a creative prophecy. It's just a creative way to to foreshadow something that is to come. So to do that, the writers present Melchizedek very skillfully with limited details. And all the details are meant to fit this picture or type. We would refer to it as a literary figure. The the writer, under the guidance of of the Holy Spirit, is presenting Melchizedek with certain details in order to foreshadow someone ultimately to come. So we learned last week that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. 
He's the king of Salem or the king of flourishing. We learn that he is the ultimate king priest. And we learn that he's greater than Abraham and greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's pretty much where we left it last week. We pick it up in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that word perfection is the exact same word that's in our mission statement, complete in Christ. So we get our mission statement from Colossians chapter 1, the end of it, when Paul talks about presenting every person complete, that's this word, perfect in Christ. So that's what this whole discussion is about. How does that happen? How is someone presented perfect or complete before a holy God? If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. So what is he talking about there? He's basically saying if the Levitical priesthood which is by necessity tied in to the law. In other words, the two are inseparable. The law is connected to the priesthood. The priesthood is connected to the law. So one thing he's not saying is that when this uh, ultimate priest in the order of Melchizedek was to come, he was not just going to open a new line of priesthood within the Old Covenant. What he's saying is this would be a complete and total change. The change in the priesthood would mean a change in the law and in the entirety of the Old Covenant. It's not a little change, it's a complete change. Now to understand how tense this was with the Judaizers, the first Christian martyr that we know of, is in Acts chapter 6, it's Stephen. When the Judaizers are preparing to stone Stephen to death, they identify two reasons why he must die. One is because Stephen was proclaiming that Jesus was uh, going to replace the temple, and number two, that Jesus was going to replace the law. So it's the exact same two things that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. They found that message so offensive that they stoned Stephen to death. So this was pretty intense stuff. What the writer then is saying is a change of priesthood. And this will be a priesthood from a completely different line not of the line of Aaron, which is the Levitical priesthood, but actually from the line of Judah. 
And there's nothing in the Old Covenant law that identifies anyone from the uh, tribe of Judah to somehow be qualified for the priesthood. So the opening discussion is, if the Old Covenant system, a bunch of religious activity, could make someone complete in Christ, why is it necessary to make a change? Now, some were probably arguing that Melchizedek showed up in Genesis 14, but after that would come Moses and the law and the Old Covenant. So perhaps some were saying that the Old Covenant, the law, the Levitical priesthood, superseded Melchizedek. And that's why he keeps quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, from David, another one of those heroes who David said in Psalm 110, verse 4, there is still coming one in the order of Melchizedek, who would be the ultimate priest king. So this one was still coming, and the writer of Hebrews has already identified Jesus as the, uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy or that type. Verse 15, and this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, in other words, genealogy, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's uh, the fourth time the writer has quoted Psalm 110, verse 4. What he's saying is if this new priest comes along, and he's already identified Jesus as that person, he does not qualify on the basis of his genealogy, what tribe he's from, but rather he qualifies on the basis of the fact that he lives forever, an indestructible life. This will be a critical part of the argument that he is to make. I mentioned last week that Jesus is the king, not because of his genealogical record, but because he is king. He's the ultimate high priest, not because of his genealogical record, because he is the ultimate high priest. And what are his credentials? His credentials are that he conquered sin and death once and for all, and he lives forever. Those are pretty good credentials. He goes on to say, Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, meaning the old covenant. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect or complete. So on the one hand, the old covenant is completed. It is fulfilled, it is set aside. Paul, in referring to the Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, refers to the Old Covenant as a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. It is useless, it is weak in terms of its ability to make one perfect or complete 
or right before a holy God. In other words, if something didn't change, we're all in real trouble. Now, this is not to say that somehow the Old Covenant failed. It accomplished exactly what God intended for it to accomplish. It was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was never meant to make people right. The fallacy of religion is to think religious activity somehow makes someone righteous in the presence of a holy God. The problem is sin. And sin is offensive to God. And no amount of religious activity unsins us. That's just a ridiculous notion. You can do religion until the day you die. It doesn't erase the sin. The old covenant was never meant to unsin the people. It was meant to accomplish two things. One is it created a standard For those who think they can accomplish self-righteousness, here's the standard by which everybody could measure themselves and realize we're in real trouble here. The second thing it was meant to accomplish was to create a shadow, a foreshadowing of the one who would ultimately come to be the Messiah of the world. The temple, the furniture, the sacrificial system, all of that was meant to be a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the promise. The promise goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God made a promise. He would do something, the seed of a woman, that would ultimately crush the head of the enemy and bring life back out of death. He re-ups the promise to Abraham in a covenant. It is pictured through the old covenant law, but all the way through, there was always an awareness that no amount of religious activity could make us perfect, could make us complete before a holy God. Therefore, on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. How could we as sinful men and women women ever draw near to a holy God? There has to be some other way. The old covenant, which is a bunch of activity, uh, religious programming, was weak and useless to do this. So God ushers in a better hope. This is language that the writer of Hebrews really likes and uses a lot. Why would you go back to something completely ineffective and useless when God has provided something better? Something better is someone better who has done for you what you could never do for yourself. This is Thanksgiving weekend. There is nothing that anyone in the room has to be thankful for greater than what the writer just said. If all you had was religious activity, all you had was your efforts to try to be good enough to merit favor with a holy God, you would have virtually no hope. You would be lost forever. You would be separated from God and condemned forever. 
What the text just said is when there was no hope, God ushered in a better hope, an actual way to stand right before a holy God. If God had not done that, there would be virtually no hope today. He told us earlier in Hebrews, hope is what we anchor our souls to. There's no promise that everything's going to be rosy and make sense in this life. We anchor our hope to the promise that through Christ, there is a world to come, a new heaven and a new earth that will be everything that our souls long for today. How do we get there? Not through the old covenant, not through a religious system, but through a person, a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So what is he saying there? He's saying that uh, when God brought forth the Levitical priesthood in the Old Covenant, there was never a moment where God promised that the Levitical priesthood would last forever. It was always understood to be temporary. But when God promised, this is the fifth time he's quoted Psalm 110, verse 4, there is an oath, a promise that this new priesthood, this fulfillment of the order of Melchizedek, the writer has already identified Jesus as the ultimate high priest, the fulfillment of the order of Melchizedek, that when this one comes, this will be the ultimate high priest forever. God says, I promise I will never change my mind on this. Verse 22, so much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This word covenant will be a really important term in the book of Hebrews, but this is the first time that he mentions it. This is the new covenant. This is a better covenant. The idea then is Jesus is the guarantee. Literally, the text says he is the guarantor of the promise. We learned in the very first verses of Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is not another word from God. He is the last word from God. This is what the whole story has been working up to is the fulfillment of a promise from Genesis 3.15 that God would ultimately send one who would be the better hope, who would usher in a better covenant that would make it possible for sinful men and women to stand right before a holy God. How do we know that this covenant will endure? Answer, because God promised. He will not change his mind. How do we know? There's a guarantee. What is the guarantee? It's a guarantor. It's a person. And as long as this person lives forever, the guarantee 
lives forever. This morning, I could promise you all sorts of things. But the moment I die, I'm no longer here to fulfill those promises. This is why it's so important to understand the ultimate high priest who made the ultimate sacrifice for sin, that we might stand right before a holy God. What are his qualifications? An indestructible life. He will be that high priest forever. So forever he will be the guarantee. He functions as the guarantor. I am the ultimate high priest forever. And as long as he lives, then the salvation is valid. That's in essence what he just said. Verse 23, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, they died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God, how? Through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what he just said is under the old covenant, there were hundreds of priests. Why? Because they died. They lived and they died. They lived and they died. But along comes the ultimate high priest. What are his qualifications? An indestructible life. He's conquered sin and death once and for all. Because he lives forever, he will be a priest forever. Therefore, he will hold the priesthood permanently. Therefore, the salvation that he offers is permanent. It will endure forever. Can you imagine getting to heaven? getting a thousand years down the road and having God show up and say, all right, we have a problem. The ultimate high priest who was your salvation, he's died. Therefore, I'm changing my mind, you're out. The whole idea is that could never happen God made a promise. This priest has an indestructible life. This priest will last forever. He will be the priest forever. Therefore, his salvation will be forever. How do we know that? He's the guarantee and he's forever. The last part then of verse 25 is often misunderstood. Where it says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, intercession is not the same as making payment for sin. Nowhere in the Bible do the scriptures say that Jesus is continuing to make payment for sin. He's not. When he hung on the cross, Jesus himself uttered the words to telestai, meaning it's finished, paid in full. Even this text will say he did it once for all. We learned in the first part of Hebrews that as the ultimate high priest, he offered the sacrifice 
rose from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, indicating mission accomplished, ultimate price paid, work is done, he is seated. So it is just wrong that Jesus still hangs on the cross and is still somehow making payment for sin. That's not what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, when we read it incorrectly, here's how we read it. He always lives to make intercession for them, as if this is uh, some sort of a payment that is ongoing. Think about the context in which this verse is found. What is the emphasis? What is the point? The point is that he is the priest forever. That he is the guarantor forever. Therefore, correctly read, it reads like this, since he always lives. That's the point. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The point is, as long as the Savior lives, there is one mediator between sinful men and women and a holy God. That is the man, Christ Jesus. As long as he lives, the intercession is good. How long will he live? Forever. How long is our salvation? Forever. How do we know? He guarantees it with a promise. He is the guarantor. He's the eternal Son of God. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now, in modern English, that can be misleading. We sometimes say, well, that's fitting. Kind of meaning, you know, that, that's, that's what the person deserved. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying it's fitting as if we somehow deserve this. What it is saying is what Jesus, the ultimate high priest, did fit the problem. The solution fit the problem. We have a huge problem. We needed an ultimate high priest. What Jesus did for us fit the problem. That's what he means. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And then he gives some characteristics. Holy, other than all other priests. Innocent, which has to do with Motive, undefiled, which has to do with no sin in his behavior. Separated from sinners, meaning he wasn't a sinner. Basically, it looks like this. All those in the world who have sinned, go stand over there. All those who have never sinned, go stand over there. There's a big separation. Everybody's there except Jesus. And Jesus was sinless, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all, once for all, not for some, For everyone, once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, the promise which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. 
So what the text is saying is that the priest before, the Levitical priest, had to first offer sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. But because Jesus was sinless, he did not sacrifice for his own sins, but rather as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, he sacrificed himself uh, himself for the sins of the world. The very last line, a son made perfect forever. This has been the discussion starting in verse 11. How does one become complete, perfect before a holy God? If it could be done through the old covenant, if it could be done through religious activity, if it could be done through good works, why the need for a savior? Why the need for the ultimate high priest making the ultimate sacrifice for sin? Answer is because there is no other way. We needed a better way, a better hope, a better covenant that would come with a guarantee as long as this Savior lives, then you stand right before a holy God if you have received his salvation. Now back to that description in verse 26 exalted above the heavens. We see this throughout the New Testament. He he sits above all rule and authority. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of heaven. He is in charge. Now, we live in a culture where there's a lot of argument as to whether or not all roads lead to God? Are all religions equally valid? And a lot of people argue that all religions are equally valid and ultimately make their way to God as they've defined Him. So we can argue that as long as we want on earth. But when you get to the other side, when you get to heaven, the one who settles it once and for all is the king of heaven. He's the one in charge. There's going to be no argument. He's the one who says. And the king of heaven says there's only one way. It's through a better hope. It's through a better covenant. It's through the one who came as the ultimate high priest to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice in payment for sin in order that we as sinful men and women might stand right before a holy God. There's only one way. Who says? The King of Heaven says. He rules over heaven. He's in charge. And as long as the King of Heaven lives... As the ultimate high priest who offered himself, he will say, my sacrifice was sufficient for sin. And on the basis of what he has done for us, we as sinful men and women can stand right before a holy God. Who says so? He does. And as long as he lives, he says so. 
God promised I won't change my mind. This is the way it's going to be. What are his credentials? An indestructible life. He will be the high priest forever, for the rest of eternity. He will acknowledge my payment was sufficient. Christ is enough. Not Jesus plus some religion. Not Jesus plus some other activities. Not Jesus plus anything. Paul, in writing to the Galatians, says if you add one single religious work or activity to Jesus, it's no longer grace. It's Christ and Christ alone for salvation. There may be some of you here this morning, maybe some of you tuning in through the live cast, who you've convinced yourself there's no way, there's no way I could ever be right before a holy God. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what's been done to you. I only know that God offers everyone salvation freely as a gift of his grace if you choose by faith to receive it. Christ died for your sins. And he is willing to offer you salvation today and forever as the ultimate high priest if you just choose by faith to receive it. There may be others who are up to your eyebrows in religion. One of the earmarks of religion is fear. There's this restlessness because in religion, you never know how much is enough. How good is good enough? It's full of despair. It's full of fear. It's full of this restlessness. Religion is this is this endless effort to somehow try to make yourself right before God. But what Hebrews tells us is that it's weak and useless because you cannot unsin yourself. Someone had to pay your debt. Someone had to die for you. Someone had to sacrifice for you and make payment for your sin in order to offer you salvation freely as a gift. It's not religion. It's not programming. It's not activities. It's a person. It's a person, the ultimate high priest, who sacrificed himself in order that you might know salvation forever. It seems to me, on this weekend, that is something to be very thankful for. Our Father, we are thankful this morning that when there was no hope, you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, you couldn't be more clear. It can't come through religion. It can't come through religious activity or good works. Those ultimately are weak and useless to make us perfect. It would have to come through the ultimate high priest who would make the ultimate sacrifice for sin. God, my prayer is that none of us who are here this morning, none of those who are tuned in by the live cast, would end this day without having experienced the salvation you freely offer. In Jesus' name. Amen.